This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's been two weeks since Patrick Brown was disqualified from the conservative leadership race, and he is still making headlines. Yesterday, he announced, no surprise, that he is running for re-election as mayor of Brampton. Meanwhile, a large number of party stalwarts are just back from the Calgary stampede. So is Pierre Poilievre's victory a done deal? Those on the moderate side of the Conservative Party argue that he could never win in a general election, but a lot of others are not so sure. And there's talk that a lot of Canadians could come together around one of his constant themes, which is, quote, getting rid of gatekeepers. Now, the premiers also had their meeting out west, and they are demanding more federal funding for health care, and that is funding without strings. So is that the solution? We'd like to hear from you, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Lisa Wright, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'd like to begin with Lisa. Uh, Lisa, where are we at? Is uh, Poilievre victory all but guaranteed in your view? It's a pretty commanding lead he has, Libby. But the reality is, is that you don't know until the votes are all counted. The reason why I say that is there's a lot to be said for the ability to get the vote out and who is going to be motivated enough to actually fill in the ballot. I got my ballot in the mail. I haven't filled it in yet. I know that there's some some things I have to do, like photocopy a driver's license and insert one envelope into another. But Eventually, I will do that. How many other people are actually going to go through all that process out of the 600,000 people who voted, many of which bought memberships for Pierre Polyab? So that's the only part where I'd say is uncertain. But uh, I mean, from my vantage point, it certainly seems as if Pierre has a commanding lead. And uh, what do you think that means? I mean, there's this ongoing, I would call it, battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. Does that worry you? No, not at all. I believe that what I know from conservatives and from caucus is that whoever wins, they will rally around. I mean, you get, you get you get a chance to run an election when you become the leader. Now, what they do with you after you lose, that's a totally different topic. But certainly you get a chance. Um, and I think that that's exactly what will happen. And uh, there's a policy convention that comes up uh, before the next election. And that will be an opportunity for whoever the leader is to rally the troops as well. So um, I don't think that this is a battle for the heart and soul of the party. I believe that there are two different visions of what the future looks like and the the commentary around it. I, certainly that's being presented, but that's what a leadership race is all about, is presenting two visions and whoever wins, wins. Charles Souza, one of the things people say about all this is that it's good for the Liberals. Well, I'm not sure. I mean... We've heard that before. Uh, Kathleen Windsor, we thought she had it in the bag when Doug Ford won. And look what happened, right? I mean, there's a, there is a distinction, a very great distinction between Poliev and, and, and what would be seen as a more moderate liberal or someone from the more extreme left. So it, it, Poliev is appealing to those disenchanted, those that are frustrated. But it's fascinating that this man is a product of the system. He is a product of those gatekeepers that have protected him throughout his career, and those that basically are those that carry the rule of law to enable others to have their democracy and their freedoms. And, 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 they, and, and then yet he's walking with actual agitators of democracy and under this veil of freedom. It's fascinating. When I watch him do his videos of his home or his renovations, 
where he you know, is around F1 trucks and white picket fences. And, and yet here are those that are seeking Canada for that very freedom and are being enabled. And they're not, a, you know, they're, they, we all aspire to those white neighborhoods. I, I, I live in one myself. And, I, and my father, he actually, he actually fled a fascist regime in, in post-war Europe to find that freedom. And he's now claiming that we don't have it. And I find that infuriating when we have a duly elected government in a minority, no less, who has to be held to account. I'm not, I'm not defending Trudeau. He has his faults, for sure. But that silver tongue of Pelev is making an impact and is appealing to people. Well, you know, uh, one of the things people say is that one of the reasons he has such good backing from caucus is that is exactly that. He's a good performer in the House of Commons. He He's a good orator, uh, though he's not exactly a conciliatory guy, Howard. I, I, look, there's, <laughs> there are all kinds of dynamics to this, all right? Um, you know, some of the dynamics of this are have to do with uh, Aaron O'Toole and, and the fact that uh, when it came to leading, um, he was not a stellar leader, uh, and he didn't uh, lead uh, as a leader with strength. And so uh, Polyev comes in and, and uh, shows a different dynamic. Uh, that that plays into this. But also, you know, what plays into this is, is just the fact that... <laughs> We are living in very volatile, very difficult times, and it's not just Canada. Um, it is virtually everywhere in the world, and, and you see governments that uh, seemingly uh, had majority support and, and suddenly are not so, uh, not so strong in their support. You see leaders being replaced. You see uh, international agreements being torn up, or at least partially torn up. So, I mean, these are very volatile times, and people uh, are angry. People, many people are also fearful. Uh, and, and so all of these dynamics uh, enter into this. And, and I think, you know, Mr. Polyeva has uh, seized the, the opportunity uh, probably better than anyone at this point. But how this is going to wash out in a federal election um, I'd be very hesitant to predict because there are so many things at play here, so many dynamics, and so many things that could happen. I mean, just today I'm reading a piece that says a lot of our problem with the cost of living and with inflation has to do more with the huge amounts of money that were spent by the United States to you know, goose their economy during the worst parts of COVID. And, of course, being such a trading partner of the United States, uh you know, we suffer from that. Well, we spent although, we spent plenty of money. Mr. Polyavra, he would say, "Oh no, this is all a Canadian-made problem." So, so there are just so many dynamics here. Yeah, I mean, we we spent quite enough anyway. Lisa Jean Charest has come out and said a few things, and he's also referring to the way the ballots. Uh, are are ranked saying, well, you know, if Polyev has most of his support in Alberta and uh, Manitoba, then then that's in his favor. Yeah, that that is a fact. Um, we run our leadership races the way we run an election, a general election in Canada, meaning that you need to have a win in the 338 ridings across the country in order to, in a majority of the 338 ridings across the country in order to become the leader. So if you sold 200,000 memberships in Brampton and you only sold 10 memberships in Milton, um, Milton and Brampton, regardless of how many people you sold memberships to, have exactly the same weight in terms of votes. And Mr. Charest is right. You know, there are probably some areas in Quebec where he thinks that he is going to get the majority of the votes and, and the province is in play. I mean, that's what they're going to have to believe. Otherwise, they would be concerned about whether or not they they uh, they're going to actually make it to the final ballot. Do you think he has a good chance? I think he, uh, they believe that we I'm going to put it in the terms that we all talk about in politics. They believe he has a path. And what it comes down to is whether or not he's going to be able to get those votes out. And that's up to his team. If he thinks he's got enough votes to win, he's going to have to go out and, and rally the troops and, and get them going. Charles, uh, 
the prime minister has been seen in all kinds of places this summer. People are kind of wondering about that. Uh, it seems that his disapproval ratings are really pretty high. Yeah, and um, and again, that disenchantment exists, and probably that is certainly taking a lot of advantage of that, uh, or, or maybe he's propagating it to some extent. But it is, it is and I, Howard mentioned that there's a number of undercurrents here, and certainly. Trudeau's overexposure may be one of those issues that's causing some some uh, dislike. I mean, he's, he's seen as taking selfies, he's always promoting himself versus possibly the policy or the issues. I don't, I, all I know is that there's initiatives that have been put forward that he's done that are appropriate, but this notion of him being condescending to the agitators, to the Freedom Convoy, I mean, those U.S. commentators that are accusing him of being a communist because of vaccine mandates, which are exactly the same as in the United States for border crossing, or when he goes and tries to thwart the illegal occupation, well, that's appropriate. I mean, this, but the way he's come about it, I guess, hasn't endeared himself, and he certainly has lost his luster to some extent. But it's a minority government. Who knows what will happen? Will will his uh, his deal with, with, uh, with Singh continue? Don't know. Uh, but some are saying maybe we should call an election sooner than later. I'm not sure... Um, you know, there's some real discussions about succession, and and, and we'll see if that comes to be. Mm. I mean, there there's some talk that maybe he's preparing for another fall election. That would that would seem it's that seems kind of far fetched, Howard. Very far fetched in my view. I mean, I I um, I, I I would be very careful uh, about <laughs> walking out onto that branch. Uh, what I found during the provincial election, and I, I I went to literally thousands of doorsteps during the provincial election, is uh, people didn't particularly want to talk about Doug Ford. They didn't particularly want to talk about Andrea Horvath. They didn't want to talk about uh, Stephen Neil they, if if they knew who he was. Huh. They wanted to talk about uh, Mr. Trudeau. And in many cases, they wanted to talk about him in not very favorable terms. Uh, this is a, a prime minister who I think has overexposed himself. I think uh, he likes the television camera too much. And when you're in times like this, and, and let me just say for many, many people, these are very difficult times. Uh, these are very difficult times. How do I pay the hydro bill? How do I put food on the table? How do I afford the rent? Can I ever afford to own a home? Uh, these are the things that I think that people are dwelling on, and they do not see any connection whatsoever with the current prime minister on that. Right? And I think that has a lot to do with his failing numbers. Uh, and and what uh, you know, do I think? Uh, do I think he will lead the Liberals into the next election? I think Liberals would be very unwise to <laughs> allow him to lead them into the next election. Uh, that that again, certainly seems the dynamics. That certainly seems to be the consensus. Let's turn to some policy now, Lisa. This whole question mm-hmm. about the turbines, sending those Russian turbines, which were repaired here, back to Germany. Um, you know, particularly uh, uh, looking at Christian Freeland saying that it was the right thing to do, but it was tough. Uh, a very difficult call with Zelensky. Uh, does it make it look like, you know, we can't live up to our own principles? Well, two things in there, uh, Libby, that are absolutely true. Number one, this must have been one of the more difficult things that this cabinet has ever faced. And uh, given the fact that Christia Freeland is so, so tied to Ukraine and so vocal, and um, she doesn't mince words when it comes to what is happening over there. So this must have been an extremely difficult decision made by the cabinet, and she's supporting it. Uh, the second part, uh, what does it say about Canada? Well, I think it's going to be portrayed that Canada isn't as strong as it should be, but there must have been international pressure coming from the United States or from or from Germany, or from Europe in general, in order for this to happen. And I think in Russia's eyes, it's a weak link in the armor. And that is unfortunate. Um, they can't really explain themselves too much, because they probably have some some reason to do it. You don't do something like this capriciously, because 
There's a lot of emotion. You know what I heard the other day, Libby? I heard that when you compare the fundraising that has happened for NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are helping provide relief and support and assistance in Ukraine, that the last time we saw um, the numbers being high or the biggest that we've ever seen was with the tsunami so many years ago, uh, Ukraine donations have been off the charts. Like, it's stunning the amount of money that has been gathered in order to support people in Ukraine by Canadians. And that is a, that's significant for this government to remember that if you're seen to not be supporting Ukraine, that's going to hit you at the ballot box. So tough decision. I'm not going to say whether it's right or it's wrong. I don't have all the facts in front of me, uh, but certainly they must have, they waited out carefully. Uh, yeah, and you seem to be suggesting, suggesting that it might not have been different no matter who was in power. I think uh, whoever is in power is going to have to weigh international obligations. Uh, the concept of Germany going into a recession because they don't have uh, energy during the winter because they don't have their gas going uh, versus what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and what it may mean to them on the ballot box, all really difficult, difficult decisions to make. Yeah, um, and I think it shows, I mean, I know we keep hearing all this, Canada's back, Canada's this, Canada's that. Charles, Canada really uh, is is not such a big deal on the world stage. <laughs> um, we like to think we are, and, and I guess in some cases we have been pretty prominent when it came to peacekeeping initiatives. We've lost some of that, certainly. And Lisa summed it up so well. I mean, if I were in, in that in their position, there's contractual arrangements and agreements that precede some of these decisions. It would be so tough for us not to comply. And and I, I don't know. I like like Lisa mentioned. I don't have the details, so I don't know what the circumstances really are. Um, but in terms of Canada's image as a result, and, and when you have, as I mentioned earlier, commentators in the UK and in the US beating up on Canada for being hyper-socialist and communist in their way, and a dictatorship, which is not necessarily true. It's not true, but it comes across as being so. And I think that's what that's part of the image problem that we're having. And it's unfortunate because we're not being portrayed with some degree, I don't know, uh, of, of strong leadership. I mean, uh, you'd have Kretchen going out there, really gutsy guy, and just telling it as it is and straight up. You know, we need some of that, and we need some of that respect including some of the relationships we've been having that are very tough with China and, and, and issues now with, uh, with the Middle East. So it's, it's very interesting yeah. the way things have, have transposed, because he was the darling when he first yeah, came out. Absolutely. And now, and now he's lost it. And, and you know what? I also found it interesting that uh, it was Christian Freeland who ended up being the, the face on this. And mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine she's, she's got to be a good soldier, especially if she's still thinking about being the next one. But I thought that was interesting, too, because obviously it, it w- would have been hard for her, Howard. Yeah. It, was, it would have been hard, but I think we need to inject some real politic into this. And I, I suspect the United States had a lot to do with this. I expect that other uh, okay. European countries outside of, but possibly also including Germany, had something to do with this. Look, you're, you're dealing with uh, a despot in Russia. All right? So do you want uh, the line to be, oh, sorry, we can't deliver gas because Canada didn't give us back the turbine? Or do you want the line to be, Russia has chosen to shut down natural gas as a way of putting pressure on all of Western Europe? And I think uh, the major power players said, we do not want the first. We do not want Russia to be able to shut down the gas for Western Europe and be able to say, well, it's beyond our control. I mean, you know, we, we just wanted to get a turbine fixed. Uh, you want the line to be, Russia has chosen to use next to the ultimate weapon to put pressure on Western Europe. And I, and I think, you know, the big power players huddled around the table and said, Canada, this is what you have to do. And I think the Canadian government uh, followed, uh, followed that course. Yeah. Um, it, things are going to get really nasty in Western Europe. I mean, they are so dependent on Russian natural gas. But I think at the end of the day, what the picture they want is that Russia has turned off the tap. And that's the only way you have some sort of solidarity in Western Europe. Otherwise, you, you put countries in a position where you can play them off one against another. When Russia can say, hey, we didn't turn off your gas. 
Canada wouldn't send back the turbine. That's what caused the. Uh, that's what caused your problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this is real. This is real politic here. Uh, turning to some real politic uh, inside the country. So we had the premiers having their meeting. They want more health funding from the federal government, but they seem to want it. I mean, it seems to be a bit of a power grab. They don't want it earmarked. They they want to say they saying we know how to use it, Charles. Yeah, and we again this is ongoing debates that have happened in the past. I recall uh, Rob Ford when he was mayor of the city came to me saying, "I need more money for transfer payments," but he had just finished um, reducing his taxes. So we're the, the 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 federal government has provided taxing powers for universal health care to the provinces over time. If they choose not to use them and then go back to the federal government saying we need more money, well, that's not fair. I mean, a billion and a half have been cut by the Ford government with licenses. Well, that could have gone to hospitals. And this is the, the issue that I think the federal government is getting at, saying we've given you the, the opportunity to provide funding for these things through your own powers. If you choose not to use them or reduce them, that's at your own peril. But then they'll come back to us saying we want more money without being accountable for that money. And as I said last program, we also need to do a better job of, of delivering health care in a more effective manner. Like, there's too much fat in the system. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes shake my head at all these, uh, you know, suggestions that the problem is money. The problem is a lot more than money. But when it comes to using taxing powers, Lisa, I mean, we, we're in a period of very high inflation. Everything is costing more. There's a huge labor shortage, especially in healthcare and uh, to go back to the well for the taxpayer of which there is one person, many levels of government. I mean, is that a reasonable request? Well, let's, let's start with the facts. Inflationary times are good business for governments because their PST and their GST is going up. As the prices go up, their percentage goes up as well. And that's a big thing to remember because there is more money coming in. The second thing I'd have to say is that I'm fully supportive of the provinces knowing how to spend those dollars and where to put them appropriately. I really am, because I think you have to be on the ground to understand what's going on. I sat in Ottawa, and I did not know what made the health system tick. However, I now sit at Baycraft Hospital with my husband, and I'm closer to the ground, and I can see what's going on. And I think you're just better placed when you're on the provincial end to make the decisions and how to transform and by the way, we are in an absolute crisis in this country on health care. If you take a look at New Brunswick as the canary in the coal mine, I mean, it's, it's just crazy what's happening to people down there. And they fired their health minister. Yep. Well, at least uh, it's, I have to say, something we have certainly not seen very much of from the federal government. And that's ministerial responsibility. That somebody, somebody says the buck stops here. We haven't really seen a lot of that. Yep, yep. And, you know, I know Dorothy Shepard really well, and she's a very, very competent minister, but she put a plan in place. It was supposed to work. It didn't work. And therefore, she ended up being taken out of cabinet. I think that's appropriate for the federal government. But, I mean, if, if we put that in play in the federal government, the passport minister, the, the yeah. minister of transport, I mean, where does it end? There's so many things that have gone wrong. Um on the as, as we come out of COVID and pandemic times of having the, the bureaucracy ready for what happens next. I mean, I don't know who you'd left in cabinet. Well, yeah, I, but I think you pointed out the two people who really, really, really should go yesterday. Can I jump I, in here? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Does the federal government contribute enough uh, to health care budgets? I would say no. And I, and I would say, in particularly in the context, we've had several studies which say our population is growing. We've had several studies which say our population is aging. We've had several studies that say that uh, given, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's some of the other things that have happened, uh, there needs to be greater federal contribution here. So I, on, on the whole, I think the federal government needs to contribute more to the health care budget. But on, on, on the second line of things, and let me just remind folks, one of the first things the Ford government did was to cut corporate taxes in Ontario so that they are now the lowest in North America. The lowest in North America. And then go to the federal government and say, we're poor. 
We need money for health care. That cannot wash. That just cannot wash. The, the other point I'd make is this, is some other provinces are now going through what Saskatchewan went back went through about 15, 20 years ago. In Saskatchewan, you have seen small towns, villages literally disappear as more and more people move into Regina, move into Saskatoon, into Prince Albert, etc. I've worked elections in Saskatchewan the last 10 years. You literally see people who live in Regina and farm 70, 80, 90 kilometers outside of Regina. That's how it's done now. The same thing is happening in places like New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Rural Nova Scotia and rural New Brunswick are losing population. But cities like Halifax, like St. John, like Fredericton are booming. But how do you maintain hospitals and health services where you have very low populations in rural areas and small towns? And it becomes incredibly expensive. And I, and I, I think you know, the federal government is right to say, look, we want to see where you're going to spend this money. If you think you're going to cut your corporate taxes to the lowest in North America and then get five or six billion extra from us, it's not on. Do you have a plan to deal with the depopulation of rural areas in your province? Do you have a plan to deal with the fact that Halifax is now one of the fastest growing cities in North America? Good question. I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to, I, I hate comparing anything to the United States in terms of health care. You know, uh, the United States is the, the only country, the only wealthy country we best in terms of outcomes, and we shouldn't be crowing about it because we should be doing better. But one thing there, there's no expectation that, that people who live in a, very small depopulated area are going to have the same kind of services as people who live in a, in a city. Is, is that overly harsh, Lisa? Um, no, I don't think it's overly harsh, but the, the problems in the healthcare system are happening in the bigger cities as well, not just the smaller ones, but I wouldn't put too, um, I wouldn't put too fine a point on it being a, a rural urban issue. It's just, it's an issue just in general, in terms of not having, not having enough staff, not attracting enough people to work in your area. Um, you know, the, the United States is a tough place to compare to as well. If I look at the level of care that some families receive in the dementia space, for example, you know, it's, it's far superlative in the United States than it is in Canada. To be frank, it, it's just better care. Um, and in Canada, we're struggling. I mean, it may all be free, and it is, to a point um, but it's really hard to make sure that everybody is receiving it. And in the states, everybody does receive um, Medicaid when it comes to when it comes to dementia. Uh, just bringing up a really huge topic, just as we have to wrap for today's discussion. So I'm going to go around the virtual table and give everybody 20 seconds, starting with Howard. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> My take on things, yep. generally, uh, look, uh, on, on the healthcare debate, when you have people leaving rural areas and moving into agglomerations like the greater Toronto area, you have problems in both places. You have, you have to deal with the increased population and the increased complexity of providing healthcare in those large urban areas, and then you have to have a plan to deal with the, re, the, the, the depopulation. And I don't see that happening. I think that's a big part of what's going on in both New Brunswick and Nova Scotia right now, just as it did in, in Saskatchewan. But, you know, there's got to be a plan. I'm still looking for a plan. And just simply throwing more money at it and saying to the federal government, you've got to send more money, is not a plan. Uh, Charles? I think in general, people expect greater transparency from their leaders and, and their politicians and, and businesses. And, uh, and that goes with everything. And then when people get misinformation or not sure what's happening uh, or we're being told that, you know, get rid of the governor of the bank and get onto Bitcoin, these things are dangerous. We need to have better, better understanding and better transparency by all and better be held accountable. That's, that's, what, that's why we elect people and, and they should respect it. Lisa, last 20 seconds to you. You bet. People right now are hot, they're tired, and they're cranky. And if I were giving advice to any politicians, I would say stay out of their faces and just <laughs> let them be, do the work you need to do, get your act together, provide the services you're supposed to provide, 
do your homework, but stop with the tours of tourism because that's just going to tick people off because they can't go anywhere. Very good advice. Okay. Thank you so much to our panel, Howard Hampton, Charles Sousa, and Lisa Raid. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to pick up on one of our topics. We're going to talk about the shortage of people working in healthcare, especially primary healthcare, family physicians, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Healthcare advocates are demanding that the province do something about the labor shortages plaguing the sector. It's a problem in all areas and nowhere more so than in primary care family doctors. What Is that something that the authorities should do? Money? Yeah. A different model for compensation, maybe. But what else, as these highly trained professionals are burning out and checking out? Let me give the numbers. I'd like to know uh, if you have a family doctor and if you have an easy time getting in to see your family doctor, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now I am joined by Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the Ontario Medical Association and Dr. Elisa Naiman, family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Doctors, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let us begin with Dr. Zacharias. So what do you think the government should do? Well, we've been working closely with governments coming out of the pandemic and understanding that while it was no one's fault, the crisis of the pandemic has certainly revealed gaps in our healthcare system. And we have a plan. Ontario's doctors are a trusted voice to lead us into the next stage of healthcare rebuilding. We are feeling the doctor shortage. We are feeling the overwhelm in the emergency departments. And there are individual physicians and nurses and healthcare providers that are highly skilled, compassionate, high capacity people that are working inside a broken system that needs some fixes. Okay, so uh, uh, what are the points of your plans? I know that the government is talking a lot about making it easier for foreign-trained physicians to work here. I know there's been talk about changing some of the fee-for-service models. Uh, What specifically, Dr. Zacharias, are you advocating? So there's many points in the five-point plan. We're calling it our prescription for Ontario. talks about catching up on the myths surgical services and procedures that were put on the shelf during the pandemic. We know that 22 million patient care services were actually backlogged as a result of dealing with the crisis of COVID. So we need to catch up on that, as well as big investments in community and long-term and public health care. Mental health and addiction strategies also need to be addressed. But when we're talking about doctor shortages, We know that over 1 million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. Everyone deserves that doctor that helps navigate the system, manage the chronic disease, also to educate and walk alongside someone while they're living uh, preventative health care strategies to stay as healthy as they possibly can. That's what a family doctor does. We need more family doctors in the system. We are working with government, increasing the medical school and trainee spots. And uh, at the end of the day, we need to let doctors be doctors. There are doctors working very hard who are are experiencing the burden of the administration expectations over and above the clinical duties that they do. An average family doctor will spend six hours a day documenting inside a glitchy computer system to capture all the visits and uh, and medical advice uh, and patient care that they've done during that day in their off hours and weekends. And so burnout is at an all-time high. Uh, so letting doctors be doctors, letting them do what they're skilled at is definitely part of the strategy. Well, it, it's not just the allocation in medical schools, Dr. Naiman. I mean, uh, I was reading that a whole bunch of spots for family doctor trainees, I'm not sure if it was residents or, or, or what, 
uh, but went unfilled this year. I mean, it, it's a specialty that people are hesitating to go into. Um, absolutely. Um, to be a family doctor is a comprehensive family doctor providing care, not episodic care, in a walking clinic or not working in an emergency department, but caring for people is a very demanding job. And unfortunately, uh, it's not paid well. And so people are realize that why would you go into this specialty when you can do other work and get paid more? And at the same time, there's there's system problems within the healthcare system and even amongst specialists and family doctors, and everybody is overburdened. And so this whole bunch of extra work gets put back on the family doctor that's actually the responsibility of the specialist. So the burnout, the abuse that we get from patients, the stress of having to, to manage the pandemic at the same time as working hard, it's just, I don't know why anybody would want to go into family medicine right now. It's, it's really, it's not worth it. There's other specialties within family, within the medicine that you'll get paid more and you won't have to deal with what we deal with on a daily basis. Uh, so is, is getting paid more going to make a good start to fixing it, Dr. Zacharias? So it's a complex problem. And indeed, I hear my colleague who is, um, is really articulating it well to do comprehensive Family medicine is an extremely demanding job. Patients now post-pandemic are showing up sicker uh, because their procedures for their hip surgery, knee surgery, even their cancer screening was delayed as a result of COVID. And all that lands on a family doctor's lap when she is doing her best to work to care for those patients. We've worked with government uh, with regards to our last agreement to enhance the team-based support for family doctors. More doctors now are able to enter into a team-based model called a family health organization. This concept was introduced in 2007. We have about 5,500 family doctors operating inside that team-based model of care. And now, going forward, the agreement allows for almost 500 doctors a year, family doctors that are practicing that type of comprehensive medicine, to enter into those team-based models of care. And so with the team-based models of care, enhancing that sort of support from all of the other healthcare professionals that are required to, to, to manage patient care needs when people are showing up with complex, complicated needs, and also looking at to reduce the administrative burden that's on doctors, enhancing technology. I mean, These just to offload to that support. to someone else. I mean, you know, every business has people who are administrators. Right, but but somebody has to fill in that form. So an administrator can't fill in the medical form. If I tell you that on a daily basis I'm getting two to three forms that need to be completed and I'm doing these forms at nighttime and then we have to charge the patients for it, they get upset about getting charged. People don't understand why am I paying for, like, medical like documentation so that can't be offloaded so if there were things within technology that could help with charting it would help but just if i could just get back to the thing about payment so when i first started being a family doctor in the early 2000s nobody also went into family medicine at that time and then that's how this push for team-based care happened that they incentivized doctors to go into this model and it paid more than in a fee for service and they were actually able to get people to go into family medicine. Then the government realized that they were paying a lot of money for it, not sure if they were getting the best care, best dollar, best value for the money. And so they put a hold on it. Now, with the new agreement that was signed, it's now opened things up. When I opened my, my practice um, in 2016, I was able, because of the location where I am, to become this team-based care and based on that, I was able to recruit doctors to come and work. If I was just a regular fee-for-service doctor, I wouldn't have been able to get any new grad to come and work. Well, well, there you go. And there's uh, these Ontario health teams are, you know, uh, I don't know where they're at. They were supposed to do a lot of things. And in a lot of cases, I think they are not, not yet anyway. Uh, sounds like, uh, that's, uh, would be some solution. I, I want, we, we're running out of time here and I, I want to, I want to ask something this, which is something that I hear from patients calling in here all the time. And that is that their doctors 
will not under any circumstance see them in person. And I, I am extremely supportive of, of Zoom or phone or whatever when you know your patients, but there, there are, you know, reasons to see someone in, in person. And I have a lot of complaints from people saying their doctors will not see them. I understand uh, patients uh, looking to book appointments with their family doctors and are getting frustrated. And we know that family doctors are in their offices and are working long hours to see patients. We know that physicians are experiencing high levels of burnout. Last year, it was measured at uh, over 70%. And I don't think you could talk to a doctor or a nurse or another healthcare provider in the system now post-pandemic that wouldn't say they're exhausted. And yet they're high-capacity, compassionate people that want to partner with every patient who's looking for their care needs to be met to do exactly that. And so we need to continue to look. We will continue to work with government. Uh, we have a bilateral burnout task force uh, that we're looking at this systems changes, the administrative support, the technology enhancements, and also the team-based support to provide that support to the family doctors so indeed they can meet with the patients that are asking to meet with them. They are doing it now. We need to support them more in order for them to do it even more. Uh, Okay, I've got to take a couple of calls here. People are interested. We've got Lynn in Hamilton. Hello, Lynn. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Sorry? Go ahead, you're on the air. Yeah, so family doctors, I've been really lucky. My own doctor here, if I have something urgent, I see them the same day or next day. And if it's not urgent, I got a week ahead appointment, which I was surprised by. Uh, when my mother got COVID in long-term care, I called her doctor. And same day, he was able to order a prescription for her for Paxlovid. So that's wonderful. Um, as far as the family health teams go, <laughs> I've got a family that was recommended to go to, ha- to the family health team for complex issues in Hamilton. There's two, I understand. And I was, that person was never able to get in. The wait time's too long. They want an interview. You know, I don't know what the history is. On family health teams, they sound like a wonderful model. We need more of those. Okay, Lynn. Uh, let us go to Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Yeah. I, I want to give you my experiences with family doctors and whatnot. I had one, but I stopped seeing them because it was too hard to get into. And I went to a walk-in clinic. It's at 21 to Queensway. Queensway and... Um, your Ontario. They have 76 doctors on, on their uh, staff there. They're not always there, but they have everything. My heart specialist ends up that that's where I went when I had a stint put in. But what I found is when you go there, and uh, the longest I've had to wait really is about 30 minutes, okay? And they say, well, what is your tale of woe? You tell them what, and they said, well, we have a doctor for that. And um, they'll refer you to it. And I find them extremely Extremely good and efficient, polite, um, and it's. And I pick people up who are waiting in in uh, other hospitals and complaining that they, you know, had no ride and I was supposed to pick them up. And I pick them up, I drive them there, and they're in that place a half an hour, and they're attended to. And if there's a major problem, a major problem, they're rushed across the street and they're attended by that hospital. Instantly. That's one of the advantages of that particular um, walk-in clinic. It's uh, well, that, that's... 21 the Queensway. And anybody in our area, like I live in Etobicoke, and I go there all the time if I got... Or anybody in our building. I said, well, is there a place where I can go? I go and see a doctor. I says, I'll take you to a place and they'll look after you. You know, Bob, and, and Bob, that's really good news that you are able to do that. You have one good experience. Um, yeah. Uh, but I guess there's, there's a lot to be said for a continuity of, of care. Yeah. Uh, Bob, we have to take a break. We'll be back with more on this, though. Okay. Thanks All for right. your Bye. call. 
Uh, as I said, we've got to take another break. We will be back with more on this very important topic. Before we go to break, the number is 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the shortage of family doctors, why no one wants to be a family doctor or few people, and uh, uh, some, some of the alternatives we're hearing about and how long it takes to see a family doctor. We'll have more when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the shortage of primary care doctors, family doctors, long wait times to see a family doctor. And in many cases, people can't get a face to face with their family doctors. Uh, uh, Dr. Naaman, I have one of your patients on the line, so we'll take her call. <laughs> Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi. I'm sure that you knew it was me. Uh, she's a fantastic doctor who keeps saying, I'm sorry, I can't accept more patients, but when I do, I will let you know. She always has enough time for the person she's with. She's fantastic, and I know a lot of people who would like to get in to see her. Um, we have worked out a situation where I send her pictures of what the problem is so she can keep up with it, and I don't have to go in that often. I'm the one who didn't want virtual medicine, but when I do see her, she's fantastic. Okay. And that's why I keep asking her, when can I send you my friends? Okay, if she if she doesn't need more patience, she doesn't need the ad. But thanks for your call, Helen. I no, no, but she is just really terrific. I'm um, glad to hear it. So, but, but but see, that's the issue. The issue is, is there's there's so much demand every day. I could be taking five, ten patients, but there's only a finite amount of spots and a finite an amount of time in a day that I can see people, and I want to provide a like quality care. So do you take more people and then everybody gets less care? Do you, do you get rid of some patients who I have so that I can provide better care to the people I have? These are the ongoing struggles that we have in terms of trying to manage patient demand. So I can't tell you how many old, like retiring family doctors there are and we get I was, I was about to bring that up, but uh, before that, just very quickly, Dr. Zacharias, is, is there something to do with the funding model because some practices, you get paid per patient, but if that patient ends up going somewhere else for any reason, you get penalized. Am I, am I right? So we know that funding models exist to protect and support the relationship between the family doctor and their patient. I mean, our caller here, Helen, she speaks to that, right? You hear it the relationship, the trust that she has with her family doctor. And also, she brought up another great point, leveraging the opportunity now for virtual care. Not everything needs to be seen in person. You can have a virtual connection, a telephone, a video consult with your doctor at times when you and your family doctor both agree this is the best use of our time. You don't have to displace yourself from work or from home with your kids, with your elderly parents. You can see me virtually. And so the funding models that work best are the ones that protect that relationship between doctor and patient. And we just don't have enough doctors in the system, but everyone needs that trusted relationship. And then also leveraging what we learned in the pandemic. We learned that virtual medical care can be very satisfactory. So we need to know when and how to use that well. For patients to experience the best care that they can. Well, well, exactly, and and I think the complaints I get are not they don't want any virtual care. It's it's the fact that for in some places it's always virtual care, and maybe it's not always appropriate. We're we're running out of time, and I can see people really want to be talking about this. But you brought up something that I think is a huge issue, and that is retiring. Doctors. I mean, the the numbers of doctors that are going to retire over the next few years uh, is is staggering. Uh, who who wants to uh, give me what your thoughts are on that? So, firstly, we know that retirements are happening, and even are happening earlier than we would expect because of the level of burnout. And so, we need to invest in the system. More medical student spots, spots for trainees inside the system 
We need to reduce the barriers for internationally trained physicians to come into Ontario and practice medicine here where they want to and meet the needs of those communities. And we need precise data. Stories will always tug at our heart, right? But we need to be very strategic and know where and what type of doctor do we need right now and how do we plan for that? So this is a systems issue. It's not going to be solved overnight. It's incredibly difficult right now to be inside the healthcare system, but you will see the more one-on-one conversations you have with the physicians and nurses and healthcare providers that are there, they're compassionate. They're doing their very best and we need to hang in there together and pull through through this next season and watch some healthcare system change for the better for all of us. Okay, I'm going to take a very quick call, Teresa and Mississauga. You want more nurse practitioners? Yes, I think that would solve a lot of problems. That is the way to go. As most professions have people that are a little lower than themselves, and I don't have a family doctor, I'm 70 years old, and I don't want one, but I sure could sometimes maybe use a nurse practitioner for something that's not as serious, and I know that if they're qualified, they would do the trick. Exactly. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, Dr. Naiman, uh, nurse practitioners, do you think that would more of them would be helpful? Yes, I think more of them would be helpful. I've worked in a community health center and I've worked along with nurses and nurse practitioners and we all work together and we worked quite well. You know, there's different scopes of practices and different things that can be done and more complex people could maybe go to the family doctor Less issues could go, to, like less complex issues could go to the nurse practitioner. So definitely we need to have more healthcare workers. And then I think we have to just leverage technology and just improvements in the system. Like the system now has just completely bogged down. So I have somebody who's waiting for a referral to a specialist. This now could be three months. It could be six months if I'm lucky. They probably, I have times now that people get, re- I get rejected for referrals. I've never had that before. And what happens in this period of time, they're now contacting me. I'm the only person that's left. So I might spend three or four visits with them that I would never have had because they can't get the appointment with their, with a specialist. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. I'm sorry, we're totally out of time. Um, this is a, a very important conversation, and I'm sure we'll revisit it very soon. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Rose Zacharias and Dr. Alisa Naiman. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.